0: Hi, everybody. Before we get into this episode, I have a quick correction. We talk about thermoluminescent dating, which is typically used for objects that have once been heated to very high temperatures, like volcanic rock or pottery, to tell how long it's been since they were heated. The story I tell in that section about sample collecting was actually for optically stimulated luminescence dating, which is a technique that is used for quartz or feldspar grains to tell how long it's been since they were exposed to sunlight. So, That covers that. On with the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology. And our shared human past. I'm Anna.
1: And I'm Amber. And this week, in honor of the
0: Valentine season,
1: we're talking about dating.
0: Oh, um, that's okay. I've I've already gotten the talk.
1: No, no, no. not, Not that talk. We're talking about a different kind of dating. Arguably a better kind of dating. Archaeological dating.
0: Yeah. No. I got it. It's under control.
1: No, 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 no. I'm talking about chronometry, silly. Oh. Yeah. Sorry. See, the better kind. That doesn't involve mm. other people. So this week we're talking about one of the most important aspects of archaeology and a veritable minefield of bad jokes. Like, like seriously. Like every <laughs>
0: as we just proved.
1: <laughs> but also in doing the research for this episode, every title, I was like, oh, just it's just <laughs> like if you read the 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 citations <laughs> yeah. like at the end of any any article, you're just like, oh. But without archaeological dating methods. Our entire discipline could be distilled into two categories, now and before now. I mean, that's a way to
0: simplify archaeology,
1: (laughs) right? Yeah. Um, And thanks to chronometry, which is measuring time, uh, we can approach the past with
0: varying degrees of certainty, depending on when we're looking and what we're looking at. And to some degree, the dating method you use depends on how old we're talking. And it's not just archaeologists that use dating techniques. So whether you're assessing whether the old rock you're looking at is the oldest rock, or you're trying to determine whether a body you found belongs to a person that died this morning or last night or two years ago, there are lots of tools in the researcher's toolbox. Which one or ones you use depend on whether you need absolute dating or relative dating.
1: Um, A Relative dating is usually frowned upon in our society. Oh, sorry. Sorry. It's a reflex. Like I can't even.
0: I mean, the bad jokes Ooh. are usually my job, I guess. Sorry. I guess I'm happy to pass the torch for this episode. <laughs> <clears throat> Absolute dating is based on scientific techniques that are used to pin down how many years old something is. The term absolute is a little tricky though, since it has connotations of finality and correctness, but really it just means that the date isn't in reference to any other associated artifacts or context, but is specific to the thing being tested. And there are tons of very, very cool methods that can be used for absolute dating. And the trick is to pick the most applicable one that will give you the most accurate result. We'll get to some of those methods shortly, but first Amber, talk about relative dating because I'm sure there are more jokes you need to get out of your system.
1: Yeah. So the key to relative dating isn't just polishing your pickup lines for the family reunion. God. Ugh. Gross. Stop it. Stop it. (laughs) Instead, relative dating arranges events and the things that those events left behind in the order that they happened. The things in question may be artifacts or sediments or rocks. Whatever the case, you don't get an actual numerical date from relative dating. You get a timeline where thing A is older than thing B and so on. Relative dating is often based on the law of superposition, which is less of a law and more of a thing that you hope for in archaeological sites where sediments can be, can often be disturbed in, by any number of factors. But superposition in its most simplest form is what it sounds like, things on top of one another. If you imagine a layer cake being built very slowly, which is how I build my layer cakes, you get some idea of how this works. Say someone who is very bad at cakes me puts down the first layer of a 10 layer cake and then gets distracted for a day then puts down a second and then wanders off and then after a couple days puts down a third and so on the farther down in the cake you go the older the layers the top layer in this cake the top layer would probably be like the freshest most delicious and the the lowest layer would be the oldest and most aged shocky yep the same is true for archaeological sediments but you shouldn't eat those although these are usually deposited in a even more slowly. Duh. Yes. Uh, the farther down you go, the older the layer should be because they were laid down before the ones on top of them. This may sound kind of basic, but it, it is. It is that base. It is foundational. Like, this is an important thing. Lastly, objects that are in those layers should follow the same pattern. A pot you find in a lower layer should be older than a pot you find in a layer above it. Yep. If you listen to our episode on taphonomy, you know that this isn't always the case. There are burrowing animals, there are insects, there's freezing and thawing, and lots of other processes that get into that archaeological cake and muddle up the layers. Which is one of the reasons why relative dating can be so tricky. But sometimes it's the best you got. But if you got better, then what do you
0: got, Anna? Then you got absolute dating. And there are many Many, 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 many methods for absolute dating. And so we're just going to cover some of the main ones. Um, actually, Amber, how about you do this first one and then it gets real, real sciency. So I'll put on my lab coat for the other ones. Oh,
1: thank you. So first up, we've got a dendrochronology.
0: Oh, actually, I want to tell a story here because okay. I went to Muir Woods, which is here in California, and it's it's beautiful, uh, massive national park with lots of redwoods. But when you go in, Um, Very near the start of the trails, there's this massive slice of a redwood tree that fell down sometime in the 30s, I think. And they have a slice of it and they have dates marked along the rings. So it's like, here's where 1492 is. Here's when Columbus sailed. And like, here's when this and this and this happened. And the article that I found on it, it was just like the first one that came up, was incredibly sarcastic about. Well, hang on. I'll just read from this article. And this is from roadsideamerica.com. Attentive and older return visitors may notice changes to the giant slice. Milestones of European white men have been removed or relabeled, a triumph of some politically corrected government committee in the early 1990s. And and like things like the signing of the Magna Carta, 1215, has been taken off. In its place is... 1325 Aztecs begin construction of Tenochtitlan Mexico so glad they didn't let that milestone pass unnoticed like the tone of this article is really oh oh dear really unfortunate but
1: roadside America so so I was I
0: was I was excited to find this article and then I was completely dismayed (laughs) when I read just by the tone but it's such a cool thing like that tree so old yeah no that is very cool that is Tell us how cool. we know that that tree yeah, how is how do How do
1: we know that, that those rings were put on that tree when white men were doing great things? <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> so we know that thanks to dendrochronology. Yes, tree time. Dendrochronology is based on the annual growth rings found in trees and can sometimes be very effective in providing a precise date. Obviously, to do this, you need an object made of wood. <laughs> so step one so the quiz so far your study guide for the exam at the end of this episode is the law of superposition and what do you need in order to determine <laughs> to, do, a to do wood science yeah, yeah. so him. <laughs> let me tell you about trees they grow every year <laughs> see <laughs> you next week <laughs> bye every every year a tree grows by adding cells in a layer just below its bark those are. That's what the rings are. The rings are the the outward growth of the tree. The growth rate changes over the course of a year in response to seasonal climate change. So it can be in response to both weather and climate. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's rainy, it's. It can be thicker because it'll grow more,
0: Rainy- Well, that's that's a separate thing too. Like in years where there's lots of there, where there are really good conditions for growing, the line may be different. But also, there is a seasonal, cyclical change in the line, so you can not only tell um, when year wise the tree was experiencing growth, but also what season because of how the lines fluctuate.
1: Yeah. So it's so it's both like um, small scale and large scale climate. Mm-hmm. And so these growth lines are visible once the tree is cut down or if you are, you can take a core through the tree. So you don't have to kill a tree or, or if so, if you're, if you want to do dendrochronology of, of living samples, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, so each ring marks a complete seasonal cycle. So basically one year. Dating using dendrochronology relies on using known samples of the same types of wood from the same region dated to known time periods. These reference samples will have particular sequences of wide and narrow rings that are related to environmental conditions. In conditions where trees are more stressed, if they have less moisture or conditions that are not optimal for growth, like they got laid off, trees don't grow (laughs) as much and they produce narrow rings. In better growing conditions, trees grow more and their rings are wider so the sequences of wide and narrow rings are unique environmental fingerprints and if you match the sequence then you can match up the timing the the trees that are most commonly used for this in in the are trees like very old trees um which (laughs) include like famously old trees like bristlecone pines in the western united states Um, you can make measurements back to a few thousand years
0: from it's it's my Um, goal like it's seriously on my life list to go find a very very old bristlecone pine and just like touch it
1: oh and then just like knock it over with your four-wheeler when there's a government shutdown no that's a lot of people a lot of people (laughs) seem to have checked that off their bucket list this year look
0: i just want to touch it just
1: guys be nice to national parks
0: just be nice to trees
1: yeah
0: yeah just be nice yeah okay sorry (laughs) bristlecone pines Go go go! Um,
1: yeah, so if we're going to extend the method further than just a few thousand years, you can match up the widths. So, you, so I mentioned that variability of um, mm-hmm. of tree ring widths. Uh, so you can match that up with uh, what your your archaeological sample or or what your your tree that you got around and you can match it up with dead trees and so you've got your dead tree and your living trees and so you can use dead trees of different but overlapping ages you can build up a library of tree rings of different calendar ages in addition to the bristlecone pines out in the u.s there are waterlogged oaks in ireland and germany that have been used and cowrie in new zealand and from all those we've got dendrochronological records back to about 14,000 years before present.
0: Which is really amazing. And so this is like you take a core of a living tree and you know that the outermost ring is like now. Yeah. And so you can just count in and get a basic idea of what years correspond to which rings. And then the specific patterns of narrow and wide rings are are very unique kind of fingerprints. And so you can slot them in into that sequence and see where on that calendar it matches up.
1: And so once you have these reference samples where rings are linked to exact calendar years, like this one, you can basically cross-date all of them. And so you, so when you match up those wide or narrow sequences, you get a pretty good match. But it is important to note that the age that you're getting isn't the age. So for your archaeological sample, the age you're getting isn't the age of whenever that chair ended up in an archaeological deposit. You get when the tree was chopped down. Trees stop growing when you chop them down. This is true. Yes, but but that doesn't mean that you chop down a tree immediately before you use it. You could have a tree trunk sitting around for a hundred years, and because you think about different climates and climates where decomposition—if it's not a particularly damp, rot-friendly environment—it could it can stay there and be pretty intact. And and also things like roof beams would get reused because mm-hmm. if if you are in an environment where it's hard to come by. Big chunks of wood that are long, then you're gonna disassemble structures and build new ones. Yes, exactly. Reclaimed wood. Uh, So all of you who are into like it is, yeah. So if all of you are into the like magnolia reclaimed wood aesthetic in your homes, what you're doing is making future archaeologists have a harder time using dendrochronology to figure out when your house was
0: built.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So if your tree trunk's sitting around for hundred years and you make it into something. Uh, you're going to get a date that's a hundred years too early because the rings will reflect the date the tree stopped growing, not the date the tree became a chair. Right. Um, and so we will hear echoes of this through our other <laughs> forms of dating. So <laughs> why don't we put on our science hats mm-hmm. and and Anna, you can introduce us to my least favorite part of every course I've taken in archaeology. <laughs>
0: Well, I'll try to make it a little uh, friendlier. No, Do you have your goggles on?
1: Kind of. I got my glasses on.
0: All right. Good enough. Am
1: I going to get carbon in my eye?
0: (laughs) No, it's just important to follow lab protocol. Are you wearing closed-toed shoes? Nope. All right. Safety first, last and never. Good thing we're podcasting, not actually sciencing. Okay, so here's some science. And it specifically is the science of radiometric dating. But before we talk about that, we sort of need to talk a little bit about Um, molecular physics. So, here we go. So, radiometric dating relies on the principle of radioactive decay, which is where atoms of an unstable element gradually turn into atoms of a stable element at a predictable rate. The basic idea is, all ordinary matter, everything that the world is made up of, is made up of combinations of chemical elements. Elements are made of atoms, which are made of protons, neutrons, and electrons, each element has its own atomic number, which means that's the number of protons in the nucleus of the atom. But, a twist, elements can also exist in different isotopes. And an isotope is a version of an element that differs in the number of neutrons in the nucleus. An atom with the, just the regular old atomic number is nice and stable. It's happy with its numbers of protons and neutrons. Elements can exist in different isotopes with each isotope of an element differing in the number of neutrons in the nucleus. So this means that it's a different, unstable version of just the regular atom. So um, a particular isotope of a particular element is called a nuclide. And so some nuclides are inherently unstable. An atom wants to exist in stasis with all of its particles in balance. And if there's an imbalance at some point in time, an atom of a nuclide will undergo radioactive decay, which means it spontaneously transforms into a different nuclide. So these atoms can deal with that imbalance of energy in three different ways. They can throw off extra neutrons as gamma radiation. They can emit electrons. Or they can create what are called alpha or beta particles, which are basically combinations of protons, neutrons, electrons, or positrons. We don't need to get into detail there. The point is that for a given element, this release of energy results in what we call radioactive decay. And although at the atomic level, we can't predict when individual subatomic particles will do their thing, the overall rate of decay for a given element is a constant. And so that's the really important part. Radioactive elements have a constant half-life, which is the amount of time it takes for half the amount of a radioactive isotope to do the emitting energy and decaying into its stable form thing. By looking at the relative ratios of unstable isotopes and their stable byproducts in any given substance, we can figure out how many half-lives have gone by and therefore how much time has passed since the material was formed. So for a specific example, I'm going to talk about the most popular of these methods, probably one that you listeners of The Dirt have heard of, carbon-14 dating. It's based on the element carbon. Go figure. All plants and animals on Earth are made principally of carbon. We are carbon-based life forms. During the period of a plant's life, the plant takes in carbon dioxide through photosynthesis. That's how the plant makes food and grows. Animals eat plants, and Other animals eat animals, and so there's this chain of carbon, and carbon follows this pathway through the food chain on Earth, and so all living things are building themselves with carbon. And a tiny part of this carbon on Earth is called carbon-14, or radiocarbon. It's called radiocarbon because it is radioactive. It's an unstable isotope of carbon. And so eventually, a particle is emitted from every carbon-14 atom, and the carbon-14 disappears meaning that it goes to a more stable form of carbon. So in the 1940s, scientists succeeded in finding out how long it takes for radiocarbon to disappear um, using samples of carbon from dead plants and animals. And the main scientist on this project was named Willard Libby, and he had worked on the team, the, uh, the Manhattan Project team, making nuclear bombs during World War II. So he was an expert in nuclear and atomic chemistry. After the war, though, he became very interested in peaceful applications of atomic science. He and two students first measured the half-life of radiocarbon and found that it took 5,568 years for half the radiocarbon to decay. After twice that time, so around 11,000 years, another half of that remaining amount, so 25% of the total, will have disappeared. After another 5,568 years, another half will have disappeared. So you can work out if you are so inclined that after about 50,000 years, all the radiocarbon will have gone, or at least enough of it that there's basically not a measurable amount left anymore. Therefore, radiocarbon dating can't work for anything older than around 60, 60 or 70,000 years old. But things that can be dated with carbon-14, basically anything that was once a living thing, so things like charcoal, wood, twigs, seeds, bone, shell, leather, peat, copper lights so from our, our poop episode lake mud and sediments that are made of decomposed plant material. Sometimes you can get carbon dates from uh, rock art and wall paintings. You can date textiles, fabrics, paper, parchment, fish and insects remains, resins, glues, blood, um, blood, um, eggshell, antler horn, lots and lots of stuff. And also, speaking of the atomic bomb, the atomic testing that went on in the U.S. in the 40s and 50s released a whole lot of radioactive energy into the world. Lots and lots of atmospheric carbon was produced, not to mention the spike in atmospheric carbon that happened at the start of the Industrial Revolution when it went from pre-industrial to all of a sudden, lots and lots of basically smoke being um exhausted into the atmosphere and so radiocarbon dating is actually only accurate to about 1950 and so the p the the p in bp so um which stands for before present present like petroleum (laughs) no not not bp oil bp as in before present which is a way that often is is referred to in dating refers to january 1st 1950 Dating things younger than that with carbon-14 is actually usually not accurate. And so this is also why we need something called a calibration curve. So we started off by saying that all these living things get built with carbon from the atmosphere, right? Well, there hasn't always been a constant ratio of atmospheric carbon on Earth. So things like the Industrial Revolution. There are equations and comparative dating methods dendrochronology for one, and also something called wiggle matching that sounds really cute, but it's just a lot of math. Um, So you need to convert your initial radiocarbon date into an accurate date reflecting fluctuations in atmospheric carbon over time. And it's tricky stuff. Fortunately, there are labs all over the world with experts to do radiometric dating. So people like Amber and I don't have to.
1: Yeah. But people like Anna and I probably should for reasons that I'll get into here at the end of our Radiometric dating section. Mm. Yes. Yes. Ignorance is no excuse.
0: Moving on to other elements. One winning combination is potassium argon dating. It's dates for rocks. So, um, this is for things that aren't made with carbon. Guess what? Can't use carbon 14 dating on them. Potassium is a common element found in many materials, not just bananas. Uh, they include micas, clay minerals, tephra, which are volcanic deposits, and evaporites. Is that real? Is that
1: true? Was I right? They're volcanic deposits? Yeah, tephra. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool.
0: Good job. Thanks. One of the really cool things that I love, so basically when volcanic rocks are formed, you know, they're, they start out as lava, and then they're ejected from a volcano, and then they cool really quickly, and... This does make them ideal samples for potassium argon dating because they were formed so quickly. But the thing that also uh, happens when these, these rocks form, they're often very iron rich. And when they form, they preserve a record of the direction and intensity of the local magnetic field as that sample cools. So like any iron is in liquid form and then it aligns with the local magnetic field and then it's frozen in that alignment. And so this is how we are aware of the geomagnetic polarity timescale. So the frequency at which the poles of the earth flip around, which does happen and supposedly we're due for that. But I think that's on the scale of like thousands of years. So I wouldn't worry too much about it. Yeah. And it's like, what's going to happen? The like, the magnets fall off the fridge. I don't know. No. Um, <laughs> Wasn't that what was used for Lucy? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, when you can't date something because it's a fossil, there's no carbon left in it. Even though Lucy was once a living creature, the skeleton was so old that it, and it was mineralized. And so um, instead of using carbon-14 dating, they used potassium-argon dating for Lucy. Yeah. And so this is... It's called potassium-argon dating because it's an isotope of potassium that actually decays into argon. So you look at the ratios of potassium and argon in the substance that you're measuring in the sample, and then you can use various equations to work out how many half-lives have gone by. And the the half-life for potassium-argon uh, decay is much longer than that of carbon. There are a lot of others that sort of follow this pattern. So Basically, um, things that decay into other things over much longer timescales, so uranium-lead dating, uranium-thorium, rubidium-strontium. These all operate on that same radiometric principle, and so any time where carbon can't be used, um, depending on what you're sampling, these are methods that can be helpful. Um, For example, fossils, like Lucy, but even older. So fossils are generally found... Like, like dinosaurs. Like a dinosaur? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Like dinosaurs that we don't talk about on this podcast, but like, it's important. And just not even fossils, also just like understanding geological time. But one of the ways that people can date fossils, if you can't get like a, you know, August 4th 200 million years ago you can bracket fossils and so in order to date older fossils scientists look for layers of igneous rock or volcanic ash above and below the fossil so those those tephra deposits they date those igneous rocks using things like uranium and potassium, which are very, very slow to decay. And so by dating the surrounding layers around a fossil, researchers can find the youngest and oldest that the fossil might be. So it can't be younger than, it can't be older than. And so this is the, the bracketing and figuring out the age of the particular layer of sediment in which fossils occur. And so doing this bracketing thing that's also called finding a terminus quem and a terminus antiquem, do you want to do you want to latin it up?
1: So the terminus post quem means the end after which. <laughs> right, so that's the earliest it could so, be. So yeah, right? so the earliest possible date. So your terminus post quem means that it's it's the point before which it couldn't have been made. Right. So post means it's the point after. The terminus antiquim is the latest possible date it could have been. It could have happened right. or been created. So it's the terminus postquim is the limit after which and the terminus antiquim is the limit before which because right, the, okay. the rest of that sentence is it happened. Right. So it's
0: completely, it's absolutely counterintuitive.
1: If you're not a native Latin speaker, then
0: yeah, it's counterintuitive. <laughs> Nobody's it's... a native Latin speaker, not even in Vatican City.
1: All right. But there are, so kind of taking a step back to radiocarbon dating, um, there are some limitations there. And those limitations are getting bigger as time goes on, and so we've got our our um, wiggle matching for for lining up radiocarbon dates with um, with other dates and and setting um, aligning things with a calibration curve, but you can't wiggle your way out of all your problems. <laughs> 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 um, so. Um, This is, so I'm going to give you guys a couple case studies uh, and and like a couple examples of ways that radiocarbon dating can be very tricky. Um, And so a study that was done by the Cornell Tree Ring Laboratory um, in the Southern Levant. So this is in Jordan and Israel and Egypt. There's some stuff that went down, like the Bible, uh, like the events of the Bible and the um, Bible, have you heard of it? Yeah, so so like people are invested in when things happened. Um, and so the Cornell Tree Ring Laboratory did a study. They published their findings in an article entitled Fluctuating Radiocarbon Offsets Observed in the Southern Levant and Implications for Archaeological Chronology Debates. While we're on the subject of dating, somebody else that's got some fluctuating offsets problems is Cardi B. What? Cardi B is a rapper, Offset is a rapper, they were in a relationship, she dumped him, she took him back after this ridiculous display.
0: Oh, wow, that's remarkably apropos. Yeah, that's a great joke. Good joke. No, I've been sitting on it for a while. I can only appreciate it after you explained it to me because (laughs) I exist under a rock, but but thank you for that.
1: Well, (laughs) And we, that you rock, we could tell how old that rock <laughs> that rock is. provides a terminus anti-quim for you. Great. Um, so the study uh, tackled the idea that pre-modern radiocarbon chronologies rely on pretty standardized calibration curves. Calibration curves are established, they're standardized, and they're just like if you send your stuff off to get to get measured and they send it back to you, they they match it to that curve. However, that curve, the calibration curve, is generalized. And so it assumes that um, radiocarbon levels are the same, and are similar and stable everywhere across each hemisphere. You got a southern one and a northern one. In this study, they did they did science.
0: Yes. Can't, yes.
1: can't with that. Um, but they. <laughs> But so they that's did, fine. They did it
0: um, so we don't have to. Yeah.
1: So they did science and they used. Um, so what they were doing, looking at, was local paleoclimate data. So this is the tree ring lab. So they're out there taking their cores and they're they're looking at stuff and so um, getting a sense of if you're if you're looking at other means of establishing dates in this specific place and then you compare it to the radio cali- the a uh, radiocarbon calibration curve. Uh, there were some differences and so i'm I'm just going to read a quick quote that is helpful um in these cases the effect of the offset can be substantial and the scale of the existing range of scholarly debate. This carbon-14 offset therefore requires attention, and in particular, further work is necessary to better define its history since it appears to be time-varying, likely with climate associations as these affect growing seasons, especially when attempting to to integrate carbon-14 chronology closely with history. So here in the Iron Age and the Southern Levant, people are very invested in when things happened because when things happened can have huge implications for who was the king? who was there? Like there are people that have a lot writing on the implications of work like this. And right. so you've got the the high and low chronologies. and so these are these are the chronologies that are used in the greater Mediterranean, and you have a lot of arguing around these things. And so um, by doing work like this, where they are, um, questioning sort of the status quo of the calibration curve and saying like well maybe if we invest more time and more research into um, localizing these these things and getting a better sense of how there is fluctuation from the standard calibration curve we can get a better sense of of dates because there are times and places in archaeology where a few years doesn't Matter because we have such little, and so we we can't have as fine tuned like the the zoom the focus can't be as sharp. But in places like the Southern Levant in the Iron Age, the focus is very sharp, and so the stakes are high. Those right, stakes so you are want high. that
0: super high resolution, yeah, or as high as possible.
1: Yeah, and so this was um, this was uh, last year, so this was uh, about six months ago that this article came out. So these are like new horizons in radiocarbon dating. Um, another thing hot that... Hot dish. Yeah, hot dish. Uh, another thing that that you encounter if you work in the first millennium of before the common era um, is the Hallstatt Plateau. And so the Hallstatt Plateau is named for the Hallstatt culture, which was in Central Europe in the first millennium before the common era. And so radiocarbon dates of around 2450 BP, um, that's before present, they always calibrate to somewhere between 800 and 400 BCE, no matter how precise the measurement. And so huh. the dates that you can get for, for radiocarbon dating uh, can that's vary. very really
0: inconvenient.
1: Yeah. Now when you do AMS, which is um, Accelerated Mass Spectrometry get trauma tree. Um yeah, so when you do AMS uh you you have you don't have to have as much of as much carbon to look at. Um but depending on how well it's preserved, depending on whether somebody like got skin cells on it, like depending on a lot of things, you can get you can get weird dates, you can get wonky dates. Ideally you would get lots of dates from a site so that you can get a better sense of where they, if you do like a scatter plot and you see where they, um, yeah, where they kind of converge. Yeah, where they converge, so you get a better idea. But unfortunately, if you work between 800 and 400 BCE, you're you're kind of screwed, and that's a shame because there was a lot going on around the world. There's stuff like, boy, there sure was the the, the Scythians. In, were, in that, like, it's 400 years. Like, Yeah, well, also, it's 400 years, but these are, like, 400 eventful years. So there's stuff like the Scythians. There's the classic Maya civilization. Homer was written down. And so, like, Greece is starting to pop off. Um, You got, like, the Bible. There's um, a lot going on. There's a lot going on. And so you have to go with other types of data. And... um and it can cause huge problems with huge implications. And there I have an, I have a little example, a little anecdote about the problems of working on the Halstät Plateau. And that is from the site of Hassan Lu, which is on the coast of Lake Ormia, which is in present-day Iran. Um, and so it, Hassan Lu was occupied... Um, for a long time, but specifically Hassan Lou 4, it's a late sequel, um, Is <laughs> a, it, it's, that's the Iron Age level. And archaeologists have been fighting for at least 30 years about who was responsible for the fire that destroyed it. Hassan Liu has been known for a very long time, since, like, the 30s, Sir Aurel Stein, who was, like, a golden age of archaeology type guy, who just kind of – I mean, his name's Sir Aurel Stein. You can kind of imagine his approach. I love his goosebumps. <laughs> um, and so – but we should have an entire episode about Hassan Liu because, as like, the site itself and the research of it um, – like, the excavations reveal a lot of really, like, harrowing snapshots of the horrors of war. And their scholarship about Hassan Liu reveals a lot about some of the, shall we say, less admirable qualities found among researchers. Because there's just been 30, well, they sort of, like, died down because some people shouted louder. And the people who had been shouted at were like, you know what, I'm going to just dip here. Uh, but then <laughs> then some folks picked it back up, one of whom was our professor in college Uh, and now the fight's raging again and last month there was a a really good chapter published looking at a few aspects of it Um, but depending on who you talk to level four of Hassan was either under the control of of Assyria and so it was an Assyrian outpost it was ruled by Assyrian and it was invaded by Araratians and the Araratians were from the what's if you read the bible that is called the mountains of Ararat so, so Noah's. where where Noah ended up? Yeah. Um. And so that area is now Armenia. And so mm-hmm. Proto Armenian was one of the languages spoken in Urartu. So it's a uh, it's a very cool Iron Age kingdom that that popped up. So either these were people who were ruled by Assyrians because don't you want to be Assyrian? Assyria is great. Assyria's got control of everything. This is on the periphery, and it was invaded by Urartians, or it was a place that just was a place in its own right that didn't care so much like assyria wasn't the center of the universe and the assyria How dare you. uh yeah i know and they were invaded and destroyed by the assyrian empire just in whose orbit it existed not great the implications of this are not great and say uh, and the argument around it because we don't have clear radiocarbon dates and we can't get them and we will never get them because sky carbon was weird during this time. we All sky carbon. Are, yeah, we are at this point where you see a lot of the biases in archaeology and you see a lot of the biases in research. You see them play out and you see them play out in arguments among scholarship, uh, among scholars, uh, because you don't have that data. So they're looking at attributes um, and sort of like stylistic influences and cultural diffusion. And so you start to see you the research of Hassan Lu becomes a reflection of the people studying it. And it's really fascinating, but it's the, like descendant communities aren't too worked up about it. Uh, old white guys are. Oh. And you can oh, see w- whose traditions, like who, whose like art historical traditions, especially, um, are like brought to bear on this, and so you see this sort of Assyrocentrism, okay. and this idea of people that come from studying Near Eastern civilizations, and so the the and just the concept of civilization, depending on if the so if it were earlier, it would be Assyrian, and if it were later, it would be Urartian
0: and it's a matter okay. of like 40 years. Oh, that's so, very high resolution indeed.
1: Yeah. So it's really it's it's really incredible sort of the so you well, like in some examples of the the um, the Halstead plateau you've got stuff like um, the somebody's opportunity to I don't know, reify tenets of their faith. On the other hand, You've got people who are trying to reify tenets of like imperialism. And so it's very interesting. But don't worry, within a few years, none of it will matter anyway.
0: (laughs) Because that's a very,
1: in my final,
0: nihilist (laughs) approach.
1: In my final fun fact about the limits of radiocarbon dating, um, there's a climate physics researcher at Imperial College London um, whose name is Heather Graven. Um, she has published um, a, a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, Kinas, um, mm-hmm. that that's, that suggests that the combustion of fossil fuels that's happening right now at, at the rate at which it's happening is, quote, making the atmosphere appear as though it has aged or lost radiocarbon by radioactive decay occurring over time. And so she she um, suggests in this paper that by 2050, so 30 years from now, the large amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere will make new organic material appear to be 1,000 years old based on today's carbon dating models. Oh, no. By the year 2100, the atmosphere will have a radiocarbon age of 2,000 years old. So uh. um, if her calculations are correct, which we have... No real reason to believe they aren't. Uh, carbon dating, as we know it, will no longer be reliable by the year 2030.
0: That's in which a decade. Means,
1: which means we won't be able to use carbon dating to distinguish between new materials and artifacts that are hundreds or even thousands of years old. Quoth the graven.
0: Nevermore so, shall we use carbon.
1: So I guess you didn't. So if you didn't listen to this, like the last 20 minutes.
0: don't Don't worry about it, I guess. <laughs>
1: Right, and you thought I was a bummer when I was talking about Hassan
0: Lou. (laughs) Oh,
1: so let us um, us, tell me about something else.
0: Okay, I'm sad. I'm gonna tell you about. (laughs) (laughs) Let me cheer you up with thermoluminescence. What? Which is actually really, really cool. (laughs) What is that? And it might blow your mind a little bit. This might be kind of a salami moment. Actually, take a deep breath. Drink some water. So the the basic principle is that in crystalline materials, so things like quartz, things that in their basic atomic structure have a crystalline lattice to them, the atoms are held in place by an electrical field at the atomic level. So very, very low level because it's so teeny. Over time, everything absorbs radiation just from its surroundings, right? So the Earth has existing low level of radiation and it seeps into everything, including things with these crystalline structures and and the energy that is absorbed the the radiation energy that's absorbed is held in place by that crystalline structure. And so when that crystalline structure is either heated to a certain point like super super hot like lava hot or you know the inside of a pottery kiln or it's exposed to sunlight Its electrons get excited, and it releases all of that naturally stored radiation. And then after that point, it kind of resets it, so it sort of wipes the slate clean, and then the crystalline structure begins to absorb radiation again at a constant rate. And so if you take a sample of that crystalline material and expose it to heat again, you can release whatever radiation it has stored up to that point. And so as you expose that sample to heat, the electrons get excited, and the sample releases the radiation as light energy that can be detected. And so it luminesces. And the amount that the sample luminesces is directly proportional to the amount of radiation it has absorbed, which in turn is directly proportional to the amount of time that the sample has been away from sunlight. So... Basically, you can tell how old something is, how long something has been buried by how long it's been since that thing has seen the sunlight. And you can find that out using heat to excite the electrons and release that stored radia- radiation.
1: So how do you... So you have to get it in the dark?
0: Yeah, exactly. So
1: so, so this is like night excavation?
0: Yeah, it is. So... What? Um, Yeah. So you can't, because it depends on exposure to sunlight. So you have to, first of all, you have to get a sample that has been buried. So you can't take a surface sample. You have to get in there a little bit, usually. So let's say it's from like the wall of an archaeological site. So like you're digging and you've got a trench and that wall of the trench, you want to know at a certain level, what date it's from. And you know that there are quartz crystals in the sediment. So you have to take a sample, but you have to do it in the dark into a light proof bag. So I went, there's a researcher who's really, really, um, like a leader in the field of thermoluminescence dating. Her name is Zenobia Jacobs and she's really, really cool. And she worked with the team that I worked with in France. And so they had her collecting samples from the site of Pestelaz, which is a cave complex in southwest France. And she was willing to take some of us with her just to see how it was done. So I found myself at two o'clock in the morning in southwest France in pitch darkness. I don't know what I was expecting because like we couldn't use flashlights. So it was just like sitting in the dark in a cave listening could to you Zenobia use
1: could you use samples? red like red lights she did yeah she and had so it's special... like when you're doing like astronomy like yeah um, exactly like stargazing and you can have mm-hmm. like a red light okay cool
0: yeah she had one but we i mean we just had normal flashlights and she was like no don't do that you know we <laughs> did you,
1: like turn on I... your phone
0: <laughs> <laughs> no like we we used the flashlights to sort of to get there without dying no
1: just say you right. like would but... like turn on the light on your phone if you're like oh,
0: oh yeah oh, let no. me just let me just check Twitter. Oh no! Oh no, no! I ruined it. Yeah. So it was just it was really cold and really dark and very cool. Just sort of like being there, knowing what was happening and knowing that those bits of dirt hadn't seen the sun in oh, forty thousand okay. years. There we go. Here yeah.
1: comes the salami experience.
0: Yeah. Oh so man. That's the thing. <laughs> like when you take that sample, those quartz crystals have been surrounded by nothing but other sediments for however many thousands of years. And then they tell you how long they've been buried and their slate is wiped clean. And so they can start collecting radiation again. But the last time that that sediment saw the sun, the last time that it was like dust on the surface was 60,000 years ago or something like that.
1: Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Okay.
0: Yeah. So that's how thermoluminescence dating works. Okay. Well, great. But my, my experience of it was just dark and cold. I was wearing shorts, which was a poor decision, um, and I was very chilly. That's
1: how I feel about shorts all the time. One last one, um, dedicated to some dating methods used in historical archaeology. This is definitely outside my wheelhouse, because my wheelhouse... But how
0: old is that wheelhouse? doesn't
1: even have wheels. <laughs> so radiocarbon dating usually is not reliable for samples after around 1650 C.E., it's like practically yesterday. I so, know. So dendrochronology is used and, and here's the part that really freaks me out, the date, you know, that's like written on stuff. <laughs> that um, doesn't
0: happen. What are you talking I about? Know, right?
1: Like, whoa. <laughs> um. In preparing for this episode, I learned about um something that can be used for determining rough dates for things that were Um, In the United States It says North America But then later American So I'm not sure if it actually is North America Or just the US Okay um, So this is for Archaeology of the 19th and 20th centuries And it is using the measurement Of the thickness Of window panes Um, I was just talking about this the other day
0: Really? About how glass is not a solid
1: No that's not what we're talking about
0: Oh okay Okay
1: Sorry, we're not talking about how glass isn't solid. But it's not. That's your. That's that's your other podcast.
0: My podcast with Ira Glass, Glass on Glass.
1: Oh my god!
0: Come at me, NPR.
1: Oh my god! And then he comes on mine. He comes on my podcast.
0: Shattered glass. Oh,
1: it's my (laughs) where he's just dedicated to my
0: melancholy. He's just there, (laughs) and you're sad.
1: Yeah. So you can figure out the relative date for um, historic structure sites. Um, and this is something that historical archaeologists have been using for 40 years. So this isn't new. New to me. This is best. This, this system, it, like this, this method of, of determining dates, um, is said to be especially useful on low-income, short-occupation structure sites because you're not replacing glass panes. And yeah. it can provide valuable data in other circumstances, such as providing relative construction date for small structures at sites that lack documentation or for outbuildings of historic structures um, that may not be noted in records. The reason why you know that, that, you know, from the for the 19th through 20th centuries, like why this window <laughs> works, um, is that this was a period where. The, it's called cylinder glass. Yes. So so the, so the windows were produced using the method of like cylinder glass blowing, where a skilled laborer produced a long cylinder of glass by blowing a molten ball of glass or a gather into a sphere and swinging the molten glass into a cylinder shape. And then Woo! you cut the ends of the cylinder off. So then you have a glass tube, a, right. a, a, a tube of hot glass. Um, right. And then you cut it along the length and then you flatten oh, you it, out, it out, you cool oh. it, and you cut it into smaller panes. Oh. And so while this wasn't intentional, what it did was produce highly uniform thickness because the the thickness at which you can blow it out and then flatten it and do everything, like it is a, there's like sort of a sweet spot for thickness. Um, right. And so the manufacturing technique popular before that, which is uh, referred to as crown glass, uh, doesn't doesn't do it uniformly. As the 19th century progressed, Americans wanted larger and larger window panes. Sounds like us. Um, and so larger windows necessitated thicker glass. So cylinder glass got thicker. So it stayed uniform the the way they did it because it had to get thicker in order to support the the weight. And then that happened, so it kept getting thicker and thicker, but still uniform, through the first few decades of the 20th century, um, at which point um, robots stole everyone's jobs. And the skilled glassblowers were completely replaced by machines. Um, And then the thickness of glass was was pretty much standardized at that point. Um, So it stops being helpful. But it's really cool. There are, like, different studies. And so I include in the show notes um, this – somebody who did a comparison of the rubrics that that researchers use. And so – and it's um, different sites all across the U.S. that were um, – Meta-analysis. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really cool. And they look at, like, like they look at sort of the – um, aggregate results and that's just a, a really cool thing that is you something that you can use to find a fairly precise date um, so, that has nothing to do with chemicals <laughs> like, right. like nothing yeah, to do with no, isotopes well, or um, or
0: historical records and since right it's, so yes is, were people writing down the like uh, is there you know when glasses when glasses, when when windows got bigger, is there sort of a mathematical relationship between the size of the pane and the ideal thickness, or were people writing down like were glass blowers? Was there th- like a glassblower's handbook for?
1: No, I. Th- it seems the the way this article presents it, and which it's which seems which makes sense, like it. Um, it seems plausible that the method was standardized, but nobody was like using a caliper at the end of it to. Right. So it's just
0: whatever worked was the ideal. And so you're probably, and And so so, like,
1: Yeah. I think this is one of those cases where you have people who are extremely skilled that just have kind of a feel for it or can like eyeball it. Right. And like their eyeballing is like very precise. And so it just happened that, that these different, cause I, I think also that, um, Window glass was made probably at not too many places. And so you have people who are kind of cornering the market.
0: Right. And and, you sort of get like a a master teaching and apprentice kind of thing.
1: Yes. And also that you don't have like lots of different approaches and thicknesses. But it's something that seems to work well. I had no idea that that
0: was anything. That's really cool. And now I know that too. Yeah. That's a fun fact. Yeah. We both learned things today. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's about all the dating I can stand. Well, thank you for listening to our dating advice. We have something to plug though, uh, before we say our goodbyes. We are doing in conjunction with the American Anthropological Association's Anthropology Day, we are doing an Ask Me Anything event that we're going to do a video recording of. We're going to make a vidya and... We want to answer your questions, and they can be about anything to do with anthropology or archaeology or, I don't know, just ask us questions. We'll answer them if they're family-friendly. And there is a Google form on the Facebook page. There's a link right on the Facebook page that you can follow and fill out the form, or you can email your questions to thedirtpodcast at gmail.com by February 15th, and that'll really help us make a really cool uh, nifty video. Yeah, yeah, and we want to hear your questions. I'm excited.
1: Send us your questions.
0: Um, Yes. Please send them in. And thank you for listening. We will be back in your ears soon, and you can put us there as usual via SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or the platform of your choosing.
1: And you can follow us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter,
0: we're at Dirt Podcast. On Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And all of that is together on our website, thedirtpod.com. And again, our email is thedirtpodcast.com. At gmail.com. And finally, you can support the dirt on Patreon. You can become a monthly subscriber or a single-time donor. Either way, we'd be extremely grateful. And that is at patreon.com/slash the dirt podcast. Thanks everybody. Bye. Bye.